Lekute Sichis Chelek Tes Zayin, Parshas Vayakel, Sichabes. We're learning the Ilunishmas Rav Yosef Binyamin, Ben Rav Menashe Kaltman. In this week's Torah portion, we begin with the day following Moshe's descent from Sinai with a second set of luchis, tablets. Moshe gathers the nation to inform them of God's desire for the construction of a Mishkan, a sanctuary. The nation generously bring donations for the construction of the Mishkan. Moshe announces that Hashem has chosen B'Tzalel and Aholiv to oversee the building of the Mishkan. In Paraklamat Zion, chapter 37, Pasuk Aleph, verse 1, we learn, Vayas B'Tzalel as Ha'orin Atzei Shitim. B'Tzalel made the ark of acacia wood. And the verse continues with the measurements of the ark, its length, width, and height. The Medrash, Shmais Rabbah, comments on the words Vayas B'Tzalel Es Ha'orin, B'Tzalel made the ark, and we learn, When God commanded Moshe to make the Mishkan, he came to B'Tzalel and told him, Omar loy, mahu mishkan hazeh? So B'tzalel asked, the purpose of the mishkan. Omar loy, she yishrei ha-kadosh baruch hu shchinasai b'seichai, umilamid li yisrael teirah. Moshe answered, for God's presence to dwell within and to teach the nation teirah. Omar loy B'tzalel, v'heichan ha-teirah nesuna. B'tzalel said to Moshe, and where will the teirah, the tablets, be placed? Omar loy, when we make the Mishkan, we will then make the Oren to hold them. But Salal then said to Moshe, our master Moshe, that is not honorable to the Torah. Rather, let us first make the Oren and then the Mishkan. And therefore, B'tzalel merited for the Arin to be associated with his name, as the Torah states, Vayas B'tzalel as Ha'arin, and B'tzalel crafted the Ark. From this Medrash, it sounds as though the significance of the Arin stands alone and separate as an idea to the presence of the Shechina in the Mishkan. This is in fact understood as well from a different Medrash, brought in the Yalka Chimani on the portion in Torah of Truma, where it states that after the building of the Mishkan, God said, You've set up lodging for me, now set lodging for my Torah so that it is beside me. This is difficult to understand. While the urn is indeed the place where the Torah is kept, the source of the divine inspiration and the place where the Shekhinah resided in the Mishkan, was the place of the tablets in the Oren. As the Ramban explains, the central and essential object in the Mishkan is the place where the Shechina rested, in other words, the Oren. So how can there be some sort of division between the Mishkan, generally, as the place where God's presence resides, and the Oren as the place where Torah resides? 
To understand this, let's preface with the following idea. The divine indwelling in the Mishkan, the tabernacle, which the Talmud in Erevin states is called Temple Mikdash, thus making them the same, so far as halacha, Jewish law goes, is understood as the place of God's divine presence, resting within kol echad vi echad, each and every Jew, as per God's command, v'asuli mikdash v'shachanti b'soichem, make for me a tabernacle, and I will rest within them. And the particular phrase, v'shachanti b'soichem, rather than b'soichai, within them, rather than within it. How do we understand the dwelling of the divine presence as it manifests in the individual and personal sanctuary of every Jew? At the conclusion of the tractate of Chagiga, dealing with holiday sacrifices, the Gemara states, Rabbavohu said that so said Rabbi Lozar, regarding the coating of the altar, which has been the discussion until now, the f- fire of hell, or the light of hell, does not dominate the tzaddik. And we learn this idea notably from a salamander. The salamander is a product begotten of fire, and so no fire dominates it. And when one anoints oneself with the blood of a salamander, fire has no power over him. All the more so, the Talmud Chacham, the Torah scholar's entire body is a fire and holy, as the words in Yirmiyahu tell us, My words, the words which the scholars study, are like fire, says God. How much more so the scholars themselves, whose bodies are made up of the words they study. The tractate continues on to say, Omar Reish Lokish, Reish Lokish said, The fire of Gehenum has no dominance over even the sinners of Israel. And this is inferred from the golden altar, which has only the thinnest coating of gold. And the incense sacrifice burns on it for many years, and yet the fire doesn't dominate, and the altar remains undamaged. All the more so, the sinners of Israel who are filled with good deeds as a pomegranate, is filled with seeds. As it states in Shir Hashirim in the Song of Songs, Your temples are as a pomegranate split open. Read this rather as Rakosech, even your emptiest ones, the sinners among the nation, are full of good deeds as a pomegranate is filled with seeds. Seemingly, the two statements of Reish Lokish and Rabavahu, or Ravelozar, are simply connected because these statements follow on to the discussion in the Masechta just before, regarding the thinness of the coating of the two Mizbechis, the two altars, the golden and the copper altars. Reish Lokish then says in connection to this that the fire of Gehinnom doesn't dominate even a sinner. And we infer this from the Mizbeach Hazah of the Golden Altar, that after years remains unaltered by the constant fire that burns on it, despite the thin coating of gold. 
which also connects to the statement of Rebbe Lozer that the fire of Gehinnom doesn't dominate the righteous Torah scholars. But it's puzzling why the teaching of Reish Lakish isn't presented first, who infers his lesson from the golden altar, which was the subject of discussion. Rebbe Lazar's lesson and inference from the salamander has no obvious connection. Also, this discussion about sinners amongst our nation and the statement that hell does not dominate or the fire of hell does not dominate even them and the general discussion about Gehinnom is found in the tractate of Erevin, the tractate that deals with halachic enclosures and boundaries. Indeed, there, the statement of Reish Lakish is quoted, but not the statement of Rebbe Lazar, which is puzzling because the discussion there is really re- closely related to the comment of Rebbe Lazar, and also because the tractate of Erevin precedes, comes before the tractate of Chagiga. And here is a third question. When Reish Lakish says he infers this lesson, that the sinners of Israel are not dominated by the fire of Gehinnom from the thin coating of gold on the altar, he actually emphasizes an opposing point to the one that was made in the tractate of Chagiga that preceded the statement. The tractate teaches that the Rabbanon, the rabbis, say that the thin coating on the altars are nullified by the density and actual makeup of the wood altars. And it's not the coating that ensures that they are never impure, but the wood itself. Reish Lakish teaches that the coating of gold is what keeps the altar from contracting impurity, in that it remains unaffected by the constant burning fire and protects the altar. There are also some fine points that require clarification in these statements. The inference from the golden altar that teaches us about the sinners of Israel is equally valid when talking about Torah scholars, using the same inference that just as the gold doesn't allow the fire to approach the wooden altar and harm it, the Torah of the Talmidei Chachamim protects them from the fires of Gehinnom. If they've done something that would make them deserving of this punishment, but for the merit of Torah. The truth is that the entire statement about Torah scholars seems redundant as we'd understand this lesson that we learn that even sinners in Israel are not dominated by the fires of Gehinnom. We would learn the lesson appropriate to the Torah scholars. As well, why is the inference regarding the Talmidei Chachamim from a salamander? Why not learn the inference from the same example of the golden altar? In fact, this is stranger yet when we consider that a salamander is an impure creature. Why learn a lesson like this about Torah scholars using an inference to an amphibious kind of creepy crawly creature if we can learn this from the golden altar in the holy temple? As well, if both the Torah scholars and the sinners are both in Gehinnom for their sins, but protected from the fires of hell in the first instance because they are Torah scholars, and in the second because they are full of mitzvahs, like a pomegranate, why are the Torah scholars called Torah scholars, but the latter group called sinners in Israel? 
This can all be clarified in the following way. The bond and connection between a Jew and God is through both Torah study and the fulfillment of mitzvahs. But these two are different. When a Jew studies Torah and understands divine wisdom through his own intellect, he becomes unified with Torah in a sublime unification like no other bond, completely and totally, from all directions. His very existence becomes Torah. On the other hand, through the performance of a mitzvah, a person becomes a vehicle to God's divine will, yet he does not become as one with a mitzvah as one does with Torah. And therein lies the difference between what Rabbi Eliezer said and what Reish Lakish said. Rabbi Eliezer is talking about the value of Torah for a Jew who studies it, whose very body becomes like the fire of God's words, becoming completely bound up with and infused with godliness through Torah becoming a Torah themselves. Reish Lakish is talking about mitzvahs and the value of a mitzvah for a sinner who is nevertheless filled with potential mitzvahs, who doesn't have and does not become unified with God through a mitzvah, yet he is filled with mitzvahs and therefore the fire of Gehinnom cannot dominate him. Filled with mitzvahs like a pomegranate means that just as a pomegranate contains seeds, these seeds aren't the pomegranate, they're separate to the fruit casing and even separated by the fruit membranes from each other. Representative of how the Jew remains distant from the mitzvah even when he fulfills a mitzvah. The Jew doesn't become a pomegranate, a mitzvah being, he is just filled with mitzvahs. And yet, though the Torah scholar has an advantage in that his entire being becomes aflame with God's words, we can't teach the idea that the Talmud Chacham is protected from the flame of Gehinnom as we teach this regarding a sinner in Israel, because when a Torah scholar falls, he falls harder and further than an average Jew than a Peshea Yisrael. Nor can we learn the idea that Peshea Yisrael are protected from the fires of Gehinnom from the inference we use for a Torah scholar, as a Torah scholar's body is fire, something that we cannot say for a sinner in Israel. Now we can understand why we talk about Torah scholars with an inference from a salamander and the sinners in Israel from an inference of the golden altar. A salamander, the Talmudic salamander, is said to be produced in fire, like the Torah scholars whose body is a flame and whose existence is Torah. But how does such an individual whose entire existence is Torah come to sin? And if one has sinned and thus is in Gehenim, how does he remain protected from the light or fire of Gehenim and remain the Torah scholar whose body is a flame? Hence the example of the salamander, which is a creature that was said to be a toldas ish, produced in fire. The Talmud teaches that the primary element that removes impurity is fire and is even more primary as a purifying element than water. And though that is the case, 
yet from fire a salamander emerges, which is a unique creature, an impure creature. On the other hand, it is said that the blood of the salamander, if smeared on the body, can protect one from fire. It is this seeming dichotomy that helps us understand how much more so regarding Torah scholars, whose bodies are entirely aflame, call gufan esh, that though there may be the occurrence of a sin, because a soul is after all housed in a body and living in a physical world where evil dominates, nevertheless the body of a Talmud Chacham remains a light and a flame, and thus the light of Gehinnom cannot dominate. On the other hand, Peshay Yisrael, a Jew who sins and is filled with mitzvahs, is understood analogous to the golden altar that is coated in gold. Through the performance of mitzvahs, a Jew becomes, so to speak, surrounded by the mitzvah, and the mitzvah protects and shelters him, yet he does not become one with the mitzvah as one does with Torah. Accordingly, we understand why the first category is that of Talmidei Chachamim, Torah scholars, and the second, Poshe Yisrael, sinners in Israel. Because the body of a Torah scholar is Esh, the fire of Torah. Even if a scholar sins, he cannot be called a Poshe Yisrael. And because his entire existence is Torah, one may not shame him because that would be degrading Torah as the scholar and his Torah study are inseparable. Thus the Talmud says, the fire of Gehinnom does not dominate a Torah scholar. And at the same time, it is also understood simultaneously that undesirable events have taken place. Then you have simple people, who though filled with mitzvahs like a pomegranate is filled with arrows, referring to someone as a poshei Yisrael, as a sinner, though it may shame him, it will not impact the mitzvahs that he has done, as the simple Jew isn't his mitzvahs. In fact, the Talmud particularly stipulates this embarrassing nomenclature, as the shame is part of the atonement for one's sins, in similar fashion to when King Chizkiyahu dragged the corpse of his father, the wicked King Ahaz, on a bier of ropes and did not afford him the honor due to a king, as this helped to atone for his wicked actions. And the Talmud in Psachim stipulates that the sages conceded to this action of King Chizkiyahu. Going back to our original discussion of the verse for Asuli Mikdash, Make for me a dwelling and I will rest in it. And the explanation of that my Shechina will be present, says God, not within it, but within each and every Jew. We understand that here too, there are the two distinct concepts of Torah and mitzvahs. As it exists in the individual tabernacle in each Jew, so it is in the temple and tabernacle of the nation. There are two opinions or regarding the purpose of the Mishkan and Mikdash. Ramban is of the opinion that the primary focus in the Mishkan 
is the Makai Menuchas Hashchina Shehu Ha'orin, the place where the presence of God rests, and this is the Orin. And the Rambam is of the opinion that the primary focus is so that sacrifices can be brought to God. In fact, we could suggest that though they have two opinions, they are not in fact in discord. In the Veshachanti Besoichem, the indwelling of God in the Mishkan, there are two things. One is that godliness should be revealed and internalized so that one unites with this revelation. And two, that there be in the physical dimension of reality the presence of the divine, like a mitzvah is specifically enclosed in physical objects. These two objectives are the orin and the karbonis, the ark and the sacrifices, which incorporates the mishkan in general. The orin representing Torah was revealed godliness, where the orin itself defied limitations of space, a uniquely divine experience. It measured a length of 2.5 cubits and stood in the Holy of Holies, which measured 10 cubits width. Yet, when measuring from the sides of the ark to the wall, there were still five cubits on each side. This signified and represented the fusion and oneness, the unity that occurs through the study of Torah. The service of sacrifices in the Mishkan and the Mishkan itself constructed of 13 physical objects to make a dwelling for God, represents and is that which draws godliness into the physical world below, as mitzvahs purify and clarify this physical objects through performance. And while in the Mishkan itself, and also in the sacrificial services, there were moments of revealed godliness, miracles and the like, the physical remained physical. Accordingly, we understand the Midrashic sources that reference B'tzalel's suggestion that the Aaron be built first for the honor of Torah before the Mishkan, and the Midrashic source that teaches that God says, you built me a dwelling, now build one for my Torah beside me, seemingly separating the two. While the Mishkan was filled with God's presence because of the Aaron, there are, there, these are two individual aspects, or there are two individual aspects to this discussion. The achsanyala atzmai, the lodging for God, the divine presence in the physical, the actual performance of a mitzvah, binding God to the physical world and making it into a dwelling for God. Then there is the dwelling for Torah, the presence of the Shekhinah as it rests in the ark, making of the physical ark an unlimited object, completely absorbed and unified with the Torah that rests within it, like the Torah scholar whose body becomes a body of flame with the words of Torah. This unique difference, as it's reflected in the personal mishkan of each Jew, in the Jew who studies Torah and observes the mitzvahs, results from the difference in Torah and mitzvahs as its source, united with the divine. The Zayhar teaches, the Alter Rebbe quotes in Tanya, a rice of a kuchabricha kulachad. The Torah and God are all one. They are not two things bound, they are a singular thing. Mitzvahs, however, are God's supernal will and are called 
Avorin de Malka, the limbs of the king, and just like human limbs, while dependent on man's spirit, are not in fact the spirit of the human being. A mitzvah is a commandment, an instruction for man to fulfill and complete. Torah is there always, even before man engages in its study. Therefore, when one learns Torah, God's supernal wisdom, one is one with God. Man begins to cleave to and to become unified with Torah and with godliness. But when a Jew performs a mitzvah fulfilling God's commandment and will, a person experiences nullification and is bowed before God's will, but not becoming one with the mitzvah. We can now better understand how the individual mishkan of each person requires both the Torah and mitzvah aspects. The purpose, God's desire for dwelling below, is for his essence to dwell below in the lowest of all worlds, and this requires both something to draw in his divine essence and for that to transpire bitachtinim in the lowest of all creation. The difference between Torah and mitzvahs is defined in these two requirements. Torah, bound with God as one, draws essence, but not into the lowest of physical space. Because even when Torah manifests and is drawn down below, it transcends and remains above the experience of hislapshus, of enclothement in the physical. Whereas mitzvahs, the limbs of the king, separate without the total unification of Torah, become enclosed within the physical. In fact, that's what a mitzvah is, taking physicality and affecting it through purification and clarification, using it for a mitzvah, causing essential godliness to be drawn down into and to dwell in tachtainim. And now, accordingly, we understand the two sayings quoted in the tractate of Chagiga, Ein or shel Gehinim Sheletes, that the fire of Gehinim does not dominate, neither over Talmidei Chachamim nor Peshe Yisrael, neither over Torah scholars nor sinners in Israel, as it's brought in this source in Chagiga, but not in Erevin. Both of these sayings of Rabbi Lazar and Resh Lokish tell us that we need to contemplate deeply into this and to realize that for both, both Torah scholars and sinners, a sin is just a thin coating for what lays within. That their main reality is goodness and holiness. And these two statements do indeed follow directly onto what preceded them, the idea that the altars themselves cannot become defiled, the altars themselves made of wood, as the coating that covers them is only a thin layer and does not protect. And, as in the indwelling of divine presence in the Mishkan, there are both of these experiences, Torah and Mitzvahs, the Gemara in Chagiga brings these two ideas, connecting them to the Mizbeach in relation to the individual personal Mikdash in every Jew. Both Torah and Mitzvahs 
are the essence for both Talmidei Chachamim and Paisei Yisrael. And no sin can, in fact, nullify this. A sin is just a coding. It doesn't change anything. And the sin just becomes nullified. This, of course, explains the order in which these two statements are brought. We asked earlier why we don't mention Reish Lakish first, who references the golden altar, as does the earlier discussion. Because Limud study brings to Maisa action. This is true too for the indwelling of the divine presence in a private Mikdash and as well as in the general Mikdash. First, Atzmos, essence, must be brought down through Torah, and then it is drawn into Tachtainim, the lowest of all worlds, through the performance of mitzvahs.